And there's that classic, what got you here isn't going to get you there because the last 10 or 15 years will not repeat. Yep. And the games that we learned and the games that worked over the last 10 or 15 years will not be as good over the next 10 or 15 years ago. What do you do? It's not impossible. It's just harder. And that's why I think the, the proper foundation and starting point is paramount. And then building up on it is also super important. And it's a different challenge for a trillion dollar pension plan or half trillion dollars than it is for uh, a $20 billion pension plan, or it is for uh, you know a billion dollar family office and it is for someone who's just trying to you know invest a million dollars. And obviously there's different challenges across the board. And I'm going to say there's a sweet spot in the middle there where the opportunity set doesn't look all that bad. And you certainly have a competitive advantage probably for the first time in your life as a relatively smaller investor where you can still do a lot of this stuff where the big guys are, 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 are forced to fall back to the more beta investments. Uh, it, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them. Hello, and welcome to the Resolve Rifts Investment Podcast, where the science of investing meets real-world application. Join Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Richard Latterman of Resolve Asset Management as they bring their extensive investment experience to bear on deep dives into the current market trends, optimal portfolio construction, and risk management techniques helping animate the world of quantitative investing with a global macro perspective. This podcast is a must-listen for professional capital allocators seeking to navigate the complexities of global markets with skill and confidence. Welcome to the journey. Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. All opinions expressed by the principals are their own and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Resolve Riffs. And in this episode, we're going to do something a little different. I was actually listening to some of our old episodes, and I stumbled upon the one that we did with Chris Schindler prior to, or just after, actually, the 2020 pandemic and the, the COVID crisis where we invited Chris to talk about the impossible market. And, you know, I think this is an interesting conversation because a lot of it still plays. Of course, there's going to be a lot of discussions about valuations and how expensive things are that are not necessarily true across all asset classes. But it, what, what we discussed in that episode was really fundamental portfolio construction, how to put together correct betas and the right weightings and how to start thinking about alpha. So I thought that what I do is I'd edit out a lot of the parts that were superfluous. I also want to intervene uh, across the whole podcast to clear up some of the points or maybe emphasize some of his points uh, that he made because he is, you know, got and with every sentence or two with Chris, you have like five or six gems that that oftentimes you just want to get in there and dissect and make sure that it, people that are listening fully understand. So I'm going to do my best to kind of just listen to this podcast, stop at times, clarify, add, and maybe even provide some links and content that delves deeper into that specific topic. And if you like this video, please do like, subscribe, let us know if you like it so we can do more of these, maybe go back to our repertoire and see what else uh, we can go into detail on. So in the meantime, please do enjoy this episode and we'll get right into it. And, and the point is, on one hand, you think the CIO's challenge, right? I got to make 5% real over the long, everyone's 4.5% real, 6% normal. Like everyone's got their certain numbers, but they're roughly speaking, I got to make 5% real and I got to do that, you know, in perpetuity. And that doesn't sound so hard, does it? I don't know. I mean, it sounds maybe not so bad. 
and I'm going to define risk because I don't want to blow up along the way. And and what is a blow up? Blow up is different for everyone. A blow up is I didn't meet my you know my my, my funding obligations. It means I couldn't pay my cash flows. It might mean for me I got fired. Like everyone's going to have a different definition of what blow up means. But as a CIO or as a CEO, however you define risk, you go, I got to make that five percent real, and I don't want to blow up. And and as I said, and this was a year ago, you know, it's like certainly true today as well. There's nothing really obviously cheap and easy right now. I don't, you know, there's probably pockets of relative valuation, but I don't think anyone looking and say, relative to 10 years ago, that's a, that's a steal. Um, and I'm just going to argue that the typical, and I know you guys spend a lot of time on risk parity, the typical 60-40 equity-centric portfolio is way riskier than people think it is in the long run. It, ha- it is not nearly as safe as people think it is. And, 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 and that's where I think this is probably less intuitive. And, and, and I'm going to do a massive cheat here. And I'm going to say 60-40. Let's just call it equities for a second. Because we forget the amount of bonds, the types of bonds, and forget the discussion for a second. Say in a 60-40 portfolio, instead of putting all your money in equities, you just put like half your money in equities. And, and so you should think of it as a delevered equity portfolio. In fact, I just said, like, let's just take an equity portfolio, scale it to about 10% volatility, which is about the equity piece of the 60-40, and just say, that's what a 60-40 portfolio is. So I'm not going to include bonds at any part of this discussion for a second here. And let's just look, when you say, most investors, and it's not just pension plans, most retail, most high net worth, most people have, have their wealth tied up in equities. Yep. And they will do well in equities do well. They do badly when equities do badly. And, 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 and so, so we'll, but they go, that's great because don't equities pay you 10% a year or 12% a year? What's your expectation? And they've certainly been paying a ton recently. And, and I think part of that is because this is US equities. You know, starting at $1 in 1926 and growing to today. And it's like, like, Okay, so like, I guess the, the uh, 2000 to 2010 looks a little ferocious, but you know, it keep, just keep buying, keep going. It always works out. And, and man, look at that run recently. And, and I think like, especially into 2000, did it ever look amazing? And, and, and the problem with this is this is the exact same data, the exact same chart. It's just an arithmetic instead of geometric. I think this is log form, but, but basically the point in this, this is the, actually the equity process. A 30% pull in 1929 looks the same as a 30% pull in 1975, looks the same as a 30% pull in 2008. These are real returns, just scaled to 10% volatility. And that's what equities look like. And okay, I lied because there's one equation in this whole presentation, and you just got to know what a sharp ratio is. And it's just to say, if we're running around 10% risk, roughly how much return do you make? And in this case, if the sharp ratio is around 0.5, that means you make about 5% real. Well, Amazing. Isn't that all we had to do as a CIO or CEO is make 5% real? Why don't I just do a 10% delevered equity portfolio? Super easy, right? And the answer is, and, and, and I'm just going to like full caveat here. This is statistically bunk. I completely made up the statistic. But if you look at the top, all I did was I took that arithmetic growth curve and I just filled in the high watermarks with like red ink. So like this giant red water. And, and that red water is the pain of equities. Because you think there's two pain points when you, when you own something. First is it drops a lot, right? So you can see at each of those things from, from, from if you put all your money in in 1929, well, in 1931, you're, you've lost 35% of your money at 10% volatility. But you've also, pain is either the amount of the loss or the length of the loss. Because remember, you're, you're trying to make 5% real. If 15 years later, you're flat, well, you're so far behind where your, your actual projections are that you're, you've blown up. And so the problem with equities, you can see when you glance at this in the U.S. equities over the last 100 years, is they make way more money than you need them to 
for big pockets of time, and they do way worse than you can afford for them to do for also large pockets of time. So equities alone and the equity risk factor just doesn't survive that second piece of the equation. I want to make 5% real for the long term, but I don't want to blow up because they will blow you up. They have, they have like absolutely demonstrably blown people up over and over and over again. And we're very spoiled by the last, you know, 10 years and arguably 20 years. In the top right in the box, there's about four statistics. One is the Sharpe ratio. It's just, that's just like saying it makes 4.7% real per year. Not bad. Almost what we need. But the next piece is like, as important, the 9.6%, that is a, there is a one in 10 chance that it put money in the S&P today, that five years from now, you'll be below where you started today. And I don't Unconditionally, think people appreciate Not that. accounting for valuations. Any starting point. Uh, not, not, yeah. And, and certainly not accounting for valuations. That is just on average through time. Yeah. There is a one 17 year period where you don't get your money back in real terms. And, and then, and then this number, this 97 is just my made up statistic. It just literally is the area of that pain. And, and, and that's just saying length is a problem. Depth is a problem. Like, I guess like length and depth together, volume is a problem. So our area is a problem. So you look at that and you go, that's equities. And I think it's fair to say though, though it makes the returns you need almost it will blow you up along the way. So it, equities alone cannot, and a 60-40 portfolio alone cannot solve your, and I don't want to blow up along the way, problem as a CIO and CEO. And, and so, like, so I guess like, you know, there's a lot of hopium in this world. We go, gee, I just hope it doesn't happen to me in my lifetime. And I think that's, there's, there's, there's that piece. Okay, so here are in bonds. Like equities, bonds also seem to make more money than you need for extended periods, way less than you need for extended periods. They also have their own pain points. Interestingly, if you look at the top right, um, actually a bit better than equities, except for it has a slightly lower sharp ratio, but has a better set of other definitions of risk than equities, which is interesting. The sharp ratio is, is a definite, you know, like volatility is a definition of risk, but not the only definition, obviously. Anyway, so this is now the classic stock bond risk parity story, right? And so you take your equity risk and you take your fixed income and you put those guys together. Um, maybe you can, maybe you can average out some of that growth risk. That's the major source of risk in equities. And so if you build that balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds and you get that stock bond risk parity, which is the risk parity that the vast majority of investor pension plans and investors are sort of attacking. And they're probably not going fully here, but they're, at least they're, they're, they're moving towards this. So hold on, I just want to make sure everybody understands what you're talking about here. So you're talking okay. about equal risk to stocks and bonds, not 50, yep. 50 stocks, bonds. But equal risk to stocks and bonds, which is roughly eighty percent bonds, twenty percent equities. But then let it exactly. Up. So yep. then you can probably call it forty percent bonds, and you know, like or you know, sorry, one hundred sixty percent bonds. And, and so there's leverage. Okay, so this is a very important point that I think he just kind of plows through, moves on this idea of risk parity with stocks and bonds, and also risk parity at ten percent volatility, which requires a bunch of leverage, right? So I just want to be crystal clear on you know, what the world of investing has talked about when it comes to risk parity seems to have been absolutely focused on equities and bonds, and, and specifically a levered bond portfolio versus a non-levered equity portfolio. So the first thing to note there is that what he's talking about most likely is a 10-year note that runs at significantly lower volatility than the S&P 500. And so you're going to need to lever up the bond component in order to provide the same level of risk as equities, okay? So um, this is an important point because at 10% volatility, his stock bond risk parity, which is not really risk parity, it's equal risk contribution between two asset classes. I would say that risk parity is equities, bonds, and commodities to make sure that we deal with that inflation risk. But in this stock bond risk parity, in order to hit 10% volatility, 
what he said is that you need to give it 80 20 to 80 to bonds 20 to stocks and then leave it that up around two times so say he says call it 40 percent equities 160 percent 10-year treasury Liebert. Okay, so that's just an important caveat, right? So what he's going to show us now is a equal risk contribution between bonds and equities levered to the point where we're hitting a 10% volatility target. And that's what he's going to show here. Here's the thing. If, if some like incredibly prescient individual in 1929 went, you know what, I'm going to build a stock bond risk parity process and invested in it. I mean, well, they'd be a genius. They would have absolutely crushed it. The, the Great Depression becomes a bit of a nothing, but it recovers almost immediately and just goes off to the races. And if you compare it to the equity curve, it's just an absolute no-brainer. It's, it absolutely kills it. And it probably, you could totally, you could totally get someone in 1965. We've done this for 30 years, patting themselves on the shoulder and going like, who is better than me? I solved, like, I solved it. I broke the markets. And then this happens. And you go, oh my God. And, and, and you assert, there is clearly a major problem with stock bond risk parity. There's a huge hole in it. Because like, wow, that's even worse than just equities. And so if you look at the, if you look at just like the, once again, the statistics, and you go, it's actually not a higher Sharpe ratio now. So apparently this is less risky than, than, than either stocks or equities or has more return for the same amount of risk. But the area under the curve measure says differently. It goes, there's a massive pain point. And let's just be clear, no one, if anyone's portfolio today of 60-40 goes through that again, uh, none of us are in our jobs and our pensions are not, you know, are not met. And, and, and we call this a, a failure of, of complete and effort proportions. Like our actuarial assumptions cannot survive five years of this, uh, let alone 20. So just to say there's a hole in risk parity and all the people who are just running straight risk parity are, are bearing that risk. Hold on. There's a hole in stock bond risk parity. There's a hole in stock bond risk parity. Right. It's, and, so, and this is now, I mean, this is pretty, I think a pretty well-known framework, but the issue is, yes, stocks and bonds balance on growth risk, but it turns out they're both exposed to inflation risk. And, and so if you look at that and you say your risk parity, your stock bond risk parity process, it's got a hole in it. Okay, so another key point here to discuss, and that is the fact, remember, we, this was recorded mid 2020, you know, we haven't even seen the level of inflation that we've seen now as of Friday, the 17th, October of 2023. So this is prior to the big inflationary thrust where we really hadn't seen equities and bonds correlate for any prolonged period of time for over 40 years, right? So this is the interplay between equities and bonds and that equity bond kind of risk parity having a massive gap in that inflationary front, right? So if you're only using those two asset classes and God forbid rates would go up in, in, in an unexpected way, then those two things would go down. Up until this point, that was all kind of pipe dreams. Nobody really thought about it. Nobody really talked about it. Here, we delineated precisely what the impact would be showing the 1970s as a good case study. And you can see here, since then, this is the last three years performance of MSCI, All Country World Index in orange and in purple, the, the uh, iShares 20 plus year treasury bond ETF. And since then, we've had that surprise inflationary thrust to the upside. And you can imagine that a Libra bond equity strategy would have suffered quite a bit without the counterbalance of commodities. So at the worst of the equity drawdown, so simultaneous losses happened October 12th, where we saw global equities lose 26%, while global bonds had lost 38% of the time. Now, 
the trough so far, three years into that discussion, I think for bonds is looking at 47, 48% as of October the 18th. It's recovered somewhat since then, but that's the risk of that inflationary shock that we uh, are all susceptible to, not just now, but in our future. And so if you want to learn more about the kind of the specifics of risk parity and the types of risks that it balances, we wrote a piece called Risk Parity and the Four Faces of Risk. The link should be up at top, but you can also look it up if you want to read it. It's a fairly straightforward document that will help you understand what risks are uh, embedded in any single asset class and how to better think about balancing those risks off. Okay, so we'll we'll get back to it, but I think this is a, a key component to think about. Eagle, like, you really, you need another asset or another asset class that somehow can handle the inflation piece without adding too much growth risk. And you say, like, and maybe we can try and solve this a little bit. And, and you know, thank goodness, there's that. I'm not going to call commodities an asset class, or at least they're not necessarily a positive risk premium, but we can say there's at least something we can invest in that sits on the other side of this equation. And, and, and it allows us to somewhat build a portfolio that's now you know, kind of-ish, you know, like diversified or immunized or protected from growth risk and at the same time protected from inflation risk. So this stock bond commodity risk parity process, if you want to see how it looks, it's like, that looks pretty good. Now, we call this a factor-balanced uh, attack because we've said that we got the two major factors. And, our, and so we're kind of moving out of asset class space and talking about you know risk premiums and asset classes. And just for a second, just think, this thing is roughly balanced uh, between growth and inflation. And it's a significantly stronger process. Now, we only have it going for 1945, so that's when we have like, you know, the basic commodity data, but this is just long, equal-weighted package of commodities. and Equal risk those with stocks and bonds. And it's a significantly better process. And if you look through the statistics of it, um, Scott, you know, it's, it's got a 20% higher sharp ratio of either stock to bonds and a and about half that area under the curve. So it's a significantly better process. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who sort of are, are scratching their head and wondering whether commodities represent a risk premium. And you, you know, we, in our, in our discussion before the, we went live. We had some discussion around that, and I just think it's worth sort of, I, I, I've sort of, I've wondered this too, and to what extent can we rely on commodities, diversified commodities, or risk premium? And I actually think that if you're, if you're rebalancing between commodities, or maybe some sort of positive drift from a rebalancing, just like the mathematics of rebalancing stochastic portfolio theory. But even then, I also wonder whether or not the idea of a risk premium is even the right way to think about it. And really, it's you're buying insurance against certain conditional payoffs, right? So in an inflationary regime, on the condition of, a, of an inflationary regime, you're, you're buying an insurance policy that will produce a massive payoff in that situation, right? If bonds, you're buying a, a, uh, an asset or whatever, an insurance policy, they'll have a massive payoff in a disinflationary regime. Stocks, you're buying a, uh, an asset with a massive payoff in a, in a growth regime, right? So it's, if you don't sort of, frame it as a risk premium, but more like I'm trying to hedge against all these different risks. I'm buying, I might pay offs with structurally different payoff profiles. Yep. That may be a better or another way of thinking about it. A hundred percent. So I, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying. From a factor perspective, we're not actually talking about risk premiums at all. We're just saying we want to say like, like, and the interesting thing about commodities, even in, even the definition I use here, I'm going to argue they don't have much of a risk premium, but they are a positive paying hedge. And you'd be crazy not to take advantage of that. Now, the other right. thing is, if you actually look at it and say, everyone starts with risk parity going stock bond risk parity because we're trying to cover growth risk. I hate bonds because they have inflation risk. Go, 
a very interesting and equally compelling package is a commodity bond risk parity process. And it turns out you go, man, I can get the I can get the risk parity of bonds without the inflation risk. Like, and and then of course the two of them together, those two packages into this. Okay, just a quick pause here because I thought that comment that he made was very interesting. The fact that a, a compelling package is. You know, if you don't like the inflation risk of a bonds, you just package your bonds up with some commodities. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, I put together a just a quick analysis. I wanted to understand the driving factors of treasury inflation protected notes. And what I came up with after doing just a, a little bit of um, a fitting here is that the if you grab the LTPZ ETF, which is the PIMCO 15-year plus uh, tips index, uh, you, what you'll find is that you can replicate their returns by grabbing 70% in the TLT, okay, 20% in commodities, and 10% in gold, scaled 1.25 times. And you can see here that the fit is pretty tight. And, and I say this just because it is clearly was compelling to somebody. And we will talk about why tips were likely invented later in the podcast. But it is um, it's interesting to note that somebody uh, came up with a solution that includes both commodities and treasuries called tips that tend to be a pretty good pairing if you understand the underlying drivers. So um, yeah, I, I put a tweet together on this. If you guys want to search it up, maybe we'll put a link up there. Fairly tight correlations and volatilities and so on. So I thought that might be worth pointing out. All right, back to the podcast. Three package, this three, this three, this three asset, two-factor package. Looks pretty good. It is a significantly better starting point. It's not mm-hmm. perfect. And it's not ideal. And, I, and, I, and, and, and you know, just to run into it, this is the commodity process that I showed you. It does exactly what you needed from 1962 to 1978 in that, in that like, inflation shock. It did really, really well. But from 1980 to today, the real return in commodities is very, very close to zero. And the question is why? Because weren't we all told that there was an equity like risk premium in commodities? Weren't we all told that commodities pay money? And the answer is not really. Not really. There are risk premiums in commodities for sure. But they're not the same as stocks and bonds where the risk premium is just buy some stocks and the risk premium is still alongside and buy some bonds and the risk premium is still alongside. Defining commodities, sometimes the risk premium is still alongside, sometimes it's the short side and it's conditional, it's constantly changing. Now, this but I want to push world. back, right? Because yeah. I, I think, again, we've experienced this long disinflationary growth process. So if we, if, if we had experienced a, a stagflationary process, extended stagflationary process, then obviously commodities, or not obviously, but I, I would submit that commodities would represent, a, I mean, we would look back and say, wow, commodities have a really strong premium. Possibly. It's just that the source of, it depends on the source of inflation. So, and, and you can define inflation in lots of different ways and people do. And then you get debates like, what is the definition of inflation? Is, is it is an increase in monetary supply? Is it an increase in the price level? Is it the increase in the price of commodities? Is it like, and, and you know, there's at least Bridgewater has their four definitions of, of inflation risk. I, I would say uh, if it's a commodity-driven inflation risk, yes, the commodity yeah. should cover it. Uh, it may not cover a monetary, like, like, like inflation risk. It may well, not certain commodities may cover the health, right? They may not. So, so is it, but just to say, but that also speaks to a, less to a risk premium, and more to the concept of a changing discount rate value to a certain extent. The question is, do they, do they pay, if you just sat long this thing, would it pay you money over time? Uh, it, 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 is, is a different statement than could it be worth more or less through time, depending on different outcomes. 
Okay. And so, yep, fair enough. And, and so I would, and I would say, if you look at commodities, there's a couple of things to pay attention to. Yeah, they do cover that inflation risk, or they did cover that one type of inflation risk that we certainly cared about in the 70s and you know, late, late 60s into the 1980. But they have pretty bad drawdown characteristics. I mean, this is, it goes off the bottom of my chart here. Um, and sometimes they lose money at the same time as equity, since everyone found out in 2008. So, sure. so you go, is it, is it a perfect diversifier? You go, no. But is it, is it, is it a really good playground for a quant? And the answer is absolutely, because, because it, first of all, commodities as a, as a thing is a complete misnomer. It's like saying stocks and bonds. Like it's like commodities is at least four or five pretty independent sectors, almost asset classes that almost have nothing to do with each other. So there's like, there's more in here than just one thing. And you, and you say like, and from that, there's also uh, uh, really different characteristics about like where the risk premium is at different points in time. And so, and so this is, you know. So Chris, Chris um, before we, yeah. before we move off, we, we have a, we have a, a good question that I think is related, right? So okay. Dan P asks, uh, can you effectively hedge the inflation risk for your equity bond portfolio with inflation tail risk positions like calls or gold or gold miners or out of the money puts on bonds, et cetera? And I think that probably the drag there is probably significantly more than what you're seeing in your, in your commodities. But can you, you elaborate at all? What, what are your thoughts there? Sure. Cause it's around to that. You say, and, and gold is, is, is certainly part of your commodity. And so when, 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 you know, when we were thinking about commodity protection, when I've been thinking about commodity protection, I say like, like I, like I said, I think there's three different types of inflation, right? So, so you can say that there's monetary inflation, uh, there's price inflation, there's underlying commodity inflation, which was, which flows through, uh, you know, call it like, uh, there's price index inflation. Yeah. And, and so, and so the, the, you know, it's kind of like, well, you can, you can attack those and defend against those in different ways, right? You can say like, I, maybe gold, uh, is, is a pretty good protector against monetary inflation. It might be like at least, and, and the gold's interesting because gold is actually an inflation hedge and a deflation hedge. It's, and, and that's why people kind of mess up because when you actually measure the correlation of gold to inflation, it doesn't look great. Because you're actually like realizing it's not a linear relationship at all. But if you measure the like 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 the correlation of gold to inflation, and, and then and then and then take away like the downside, the deflation piece, the core like the correlation comes up significantly. Mm-hmm. So so gold is a, is a decent inflation hedge, but not not a perfect inflation hedge, not even close. If you want to do price, well, the easiest way to go at that is real return bonds or break evens. If you want to really isolate the inflation mm-hmm. piece, if you want to talk about well, if it comes from the commodity side, you should probably have some commodities. If it's, you know, and, and so, and, and, and the main source of that tends to be the energies, but like that flows through quite quickly the eggs and, and you can see it. So you can basically see, um, at least three different types of inflation and go like, if you want to edge inflation, you should probably have a basket of stuff that kind of attacks it from those three directions. Right. Just to say like, like, you want to make sure you've got it kind of covered. Now, can you, can you do gold miners? Well, there's a ton of business risk in that. And now you add, now you've introduced some equity risk into your inflation hedge. Can you buy, uh, calls and puts and you go, yes. Absolutely. That was a classic form of insurance, but you're going to be paying a lot of money for it. The beauty of this approach is that these are all positive pay, negatively correlated on expectation. Yeah. And, 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 and so, yes, and you can start to think about mitigating risks if you, if you feel you have a particular source of risk you want to cover. But in general, uh, we're going to try and build the portfolio. And when I think of risk parity, and this is, and this is, um, this is how I've tried to explain it to people. This isn't the, it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be a static portfolio. You don't have to, you don't have to only do this. You could just, in fact, you want to add lots to it. But I think I'm trying to build the portfolio. When I think of stacked or balanced, I'm trying to build the portfolio that I would want to have 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Right. And we talked about this in the podcast, I think, but you know, like, mm-hmm. this is a distinctly different than the portfolio I want to have over the next 10 years. It's the portfolio in 10 years because I can tell you a certainty. No one has a view about whether stocks are going to outperform bonds in 10 years. 
or whether commodities are going to outperform bonds in 10 years. It's imp- no one has an active view 10 years from now. What is the portfolio that is as best as possible? Active view agnostic, right? That's your starting point. Now you can put access to that all over it if you want to, but, but what, how do you define the, the most passive you can get away with getting without, without, without getting like ridiculous? Like, this is a definition I think of a pretty good definition of passive. It's, it's like, I have no active use. This is the thing that's it's the, the do no harm portfolio, right? This is, this is because first and foremost, these guys protect each other. That's a great starting point. Yep. So now, as we said, though, commodities, here's the thing. They did really great till 1980. And then from 1980 to today, zero real returns, right? And, and you said, can we do better? And in fact, if you, had, if you had a wish list of the perfect asset to hedge your stocks and bonds, you say, I want to have inflation hedging protection. I, I want it to like, ideally not have these terrible drawdowns. And I, I maybe not draw down at the same time as equities. You know, and so you have this wish list of like, what would be the perfect, like, like, like balancing asset for stocks and bonds? And you go, I, I mean, probably it sounds ridiculous. And you say, can we build that? Now I'm going to go, I'm going to make a giant leap here and say, yep, we can. I think we can build it. And, and this is a very dumbed down, simplistic, sort of like simplified version of the types of things you can do. But just to say, we're going to call this an enhanced commodity process. I, I'm not going to talk about how it might be done, but I'm going to say, let's just say there's ways that you might want to do this. It's got some nice characteristics. And, and, and let's just pretend, just go with me for a second and say, imagine we could build something kind of like this. So I've actually not had a chance to talk to Chris Schindler about this because it just flew by and we have so many other topics to talk about. But my guess is just looking at the equity line and how it has done to improve the, the outcome of just buying long commodities is that he's running a simple trend following strategy on the full managed future spectrum. Maybe he's running a trend strategy across the commodity space exclusive. But from what I see here, what he's likely done is done equities, bonds, and instead of commodities, a managed futures trend uh, replication approach. So, you know, we've done a, a ton of work on that, just to up resolve asset management and trend replication or anything that has to do with return stacked. If you go to returnstack.com and look at some of the recent um, articles that we've written that include that kind of stacking that diversifier, you just see the the benefits of using that over commodities. Although we still believe that a portion of naive commodities is probably a good idea. All right. So just wanted to point that out and back to the podcast. If you build a balanced portfolio of equal risk portfolio stocks and bonds in this enhanced commodity process, and that's what you got on the right and compare it to just your equity centric portfolio, which you have on the left, you can see it's night and day. Mm-hmm. Now it's, uh, you know, say for the same monthly volatility, it makes about twice as much money. Or the other way you can say that is if you want to, you can run it at half the risk to make the same amount of return. But the real key feature is that it's got like less than one third of that pain that the equity centric portfolio has. And, and so I think, I think it's fair to say this is like, this is a clearly uh, better starting point than an equity centric portfolio. And, it's, and, and, and so now I'm just going to say, it looks great. Why don't we just put all our money in this and just go golfing for the rest of our lives? And the answer is because I cheated like so badly in this in a bunch of different ways. And there's a really, really important cheats because everyone, everyone commits like some part of these cheats. And I got to tell you, the reason you can't just do this and go, and the reason it's not going to be that easy. First of all, I just showed you U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds over the last hundred years. The, the U.S. is the top performing stock and bond market in the world over the last hundred years. And, and I guess it kind of goes without saying, if I was like, look, of the 16 
major indices, you know, that, that, that have been around from, you know, 1900 to today, the U.S. is by far the best. In fact, if you look at the next, like, I think the U.S. has got that four and a half percent real. I think the next best is like two and a half percent real. So you say, what do equities owe you? What should you expect out of equities over the next 10, 50, 100 years? Unless you can tell me that of the 16 largest countries today, you know what the winner is going to be and you put all your money in that, it doesn't owe you what the winner paid you over the last 100. It's probably more like what the medium paid. Yeah. That's like 250 basis points real. It's not as good as it looks. Um, the other problem with that is I said of the 16 countries that survived, you go, oh, but there's like, if you, if you look at the, the biggest countries in 1900, a bunch of them went to zero. If you put your money in Russia or Egypt or Argentina, like, like, like countries that surprisingly were like very large, Germany, like, like Italy, zeros across the board. Russia and China both went to zero. Yeah. And they were large economies Austria. back when they went, yep. when they went yeah. there. So, so, so just to say, if you follow the winner the whole way through, and if you do the median, but again, adjusting for survivor bias, it's more like 150 basis points. And that's really generous. So we've got a, like, we've got a, a real sense that equities owe us a lot more than I think they will ultimately pay. But I'm pretty sure that risk of them is an accurate representation of the risk. And that's the long term. That's not talking about today's starting point. So, so this is a difficult time. For okay, so this is such a crucial point that he's making, right? A lot of the, the historical lookbacks that we see analysts provide have a lot to do with U.S. equities, U.S. bonds, and how it's done in the past, what we can expect in the future. And, you know, even with that analysis, when we, we just look at U.S. equities and how they've done in terms of the expected or the historical risk premia, we're often quoted four or four and a half percent as the return above inflation that we should expect in the future. But as Chris alluded to, this is, this is a revisionist history, right? We're looking at the best performing asset class um, uh, ex post. And if we just look at global asset classes with survivorship bias, we're still looking at two and a half. If we take out the, the ones that never made it, we're looking at 150 basis points uh, above cash is what I think would be a reasonable expectation, right? So what does this actually mean? It, it means that whenever an investor has cash and invests it, if they invested in the stock market, stock markets have a volatility of around 15 to 20%. And so for that excess risk, a 15% volatility, assuming a normal distribution, will mean a at least a 30% drawdown, probably 45, because equities on their own are not, not normally distributed. So in order to achieve an extra 1.5% above cash or above inflation, you are you need to be prepared to take a 45 to 50% drawdown and annualize standard deviation of 15%. And I just don't think that people recognize that that is the case. And I, I think we had Meb Faber in, on the island doing a presentation for a few CFAs here recently. And one of the things that he pointed out, he does a lot of polls, and he, he asks, you know, what do people expect uh, in terms of return for their equity portfolio? And the one that won the most was above 15%, right? It's, it's just the, the view of what, expectations are versus reality is massive. And I think this conversation brings it back down to some sort of semblance of reality. And that's not even assuming the starting point is high. Uh, now, this was recorded three years ago. Um, there was a drawdown. So, so valuations got a little bit better. So maybe the starting point may have gotten a little bit better. But in fact, it is now 
uh, October, sorry, November 17th, 2023. If you include distributions or you know, dividends up to today, we're almost back up to historical highs. So while bonds might have gotten better in terms of valuations, equities continue to be a historical expensive high. So is the, even the 150 basis points appropriate? I don't know. So thought I'd kind of pause here, point that out as we continue our analysis. Yeah, we haven't even got there yet. Exactly. Yeah, okay. So, and so the next thing is obviously, I, I showed you a commodity model. I said, if I could have done this in 1965, look how great it was. And I said, just trust me, I can do this. Of course, I would not have known to do that in 1965. So, so there's, there's a whole bunch of, you know, we started doing similar things back in 2003, 2002, um, and, they've, and they've continued to work, but you have to have a really strong argument as to why this is a persistent risk premium as opposed to just, a, hey, if I know to do this thing, here's, and, and, and you've got to hold people's feet to the fire to defend that. Fourth thing is it requires leverage, which, which, which a bunch of people can't do and a bunch of people just refuse to do. And at the end of the day, they would rather sit on that incredibly risky equity portfolio than build a more diversified process that requires some leverage because they somehow feel that that is risky while this isn't. And, and so, because I think, once again, they're caught in some of these survivor bias, uh, US-centric essentialism uh, research problems. So this is another interesting point that uh, Chris made three years ago that, you know, we talk about constraints. Everything that he's talked about so far seems so easy, right? Just grab a couple assets you make sure you hit 10% volatility with some leverage. But the reality was that three years ago, as he's saying here, there, there was a big constraint, which is access to cheap leverage. Three years ago, there wasn't really a way to give that type of access to retail investors. That has changed, right? The derivatives rule that came in changed the landscape in the U.S. especially. And now we have, you know, we wrote the piece on return stacking. And now we've seen launches of ETFs that allow investors to really get that type of leverage that they need in order to create diversity and balance and move away from the U.S. centric portfolio. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's a major change if this is the first time you've seen this video and you haven't heard about Return Stack and you can learn everything about it in returnstacked.com. So uh, go there and uh, learn how to get access to leverage through basic ETFs and mutual funds. All right, back to the program. And then the last one, capacity. Not everyone can do this. If you're a trillion dollar pension plan, it's, it's impossible to get enough inflation protection to cover your stock bond risk. And in fact, you probably don't have enough bonds either. And so you're probably just running, riding the equity process. And now your challenge as a CIO is, is to... Uh, you know, optimize that portfolio given the constraints you have. There's, there's a whole ton of constraints in, into that optimization. If you're too small, it becomes a bit hard to do, but there is the, there's an absolute sweet spot where you could actually probably, you know, like, like, like literally for the first time say, I think I have a head of advantage over the big guys because I think I can still do this because I think there's the capacity and, 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 and it requires a certain amount of sophistication, but it's doable. So this is another crucial aspect, an advantage that I think few investors that are medium size or even now small size have over the institutions. And we've talked about this over and over again in the podcast, which is this idea of if you're an advisor, you want to make portfolios that are similar to the endowment model, right? Where everybody wants to be like the big endowment funds. And that's such a misguided position because the reason that those large multi-billion dollar pension plans are doing private equity, private credit, all the private focus that they are and not hedging their risk with commodities, but rather hedging their risk with tips is because of liquidity constraints. They are simply due to uh, CFTC limits, regulatory constraints, are, are not able to take advantage of the things that medium size. And now, again, to, due to the return stack 
uh, lineup that exists for the average investor with a hundred bucks, you can do this now and get institutional quality leverage and access. Um, now you have an opportunity at any size up until, you know, around $10 billion probably to take advantage of diversity in ways that the endowment model simply cannot. Let's stop trying to reach for that obscure private equity model and start using the tools that are available to us and give us advantage today uh, to create more balanced portfolios and more liquid portfolios. All right, back to the program. Is the capacity on the inflation hedge uh, probably to do, or probably the reason why Bridgewater worked with the U.S. government to to launch the uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities? Uh, Could be, I'm for sure they would have been looking for their inflation protection. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I assume it's capacity. I mean, like, so, so the, the, the fact is there's just not enough commodity futures out there for everyone to like, for even a very small percentage of people to say, you know, the banks will give you swaps around it, but it's somewhere sooner, sooner or later, like, like, like there, there's a limited amount that you can do because there's not that many people want to get on the other side of that trade. Even and, the swaps end up back in the futures yeah, market. Like, I mean, of course, they they have have to, unless yeah. somehow you've done an offset, you know, and, and, yeah. and so, and then, and then you kind of go, so you have to come at it in different ways. And like I said, real return bonds. Is a pretty good one. Now, the problem with real-term bonds, or the challenge of them, is the break-even part, the, inf- the inflation hedge part of it has got a negative respect to return. So, so it's not a positive pay, it's a slight negative pay. Uh, so that's not bad. Probably still worth doing so on. And then you say, well, gold. Is it a positive Probably a positive respect to return, at least real neutral, but probably real plus something. And it's got a nice deflation hedge piece to it, so you probably want some gold in your process. Um, and, and so you have to be a little bit creative about coming at it from, like, especially the inflation has sides, but because of the cost limitations. We've got one other question here too, and I think it's relevant. How does this work in those pinch points where the correlation of assets and the drift from historical positions, uh, you're, you're going to get some sort of liquidity contraction like we had in March, where there just isn't an asset. Even, you know, your long-dated treasuries or your shorter-dated treasuries had Everything some went down. Li- liquidity pinch points. Sure. Um, so, um, does it, does it never lose? No. If you look at it on the bottom right, it, it's not volatility. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, what it doesn't have is, is clustered. In fact, it's a much more normal process. At 10% volume, you'll see some 20s, you'll see some 10s, you'll see some 15s, you'll see a 25. Uh, it's a much more normal process. I, I, and you should run away scared from any process that says it's 10% fall. It doesn't have peak to trough pulls of 15 to 20% every three to four years because it means it's not random walking. And, and when something doesn't random walk, it's almost always because the volatility is being high, hidden in higher order risk, in higher moment risk. Okay, let me pause here for a second because I think this is such a, another crucial concept for portfolio construction. And when assessing the risk that you are about to take on from any strategy, from any manager across any type of liquid alternative or even any sort of, at the very least, a well-diversified portfolio, is the fact that there, there's a lot of information in understanding the average volatility of a strategy in terms of what your expected peak to trough loss is likely to be over a three to five year period. What he's saying here is that if you're running a 10% volatility strategy, what you should expect is if it is a random walk, which, which it should be if there's full transparency in that liquidity and markets are priced on a daily basis, that uh, a three standard deviation event is something you should brace yourself for. So if you have a strategy with a sharp ratio of one, or something that returns 10% with a 10% volatility, then what you need to expect is three standard deviations to the left. So 10% uh, minus 10 is one standard deviation. That's a zero. Minus 10 is negative 10. Minus 10 is negative 20, right? So this is, this is kind of like the, the negative left side of the tail that you can expect 
from a relatively balanced, normally distributed strategy. Okay. So one caveat to this is that when you're looking at a single stock or a single asset class like equities, you don't have normal distribution. You tend to have really fat tails. I think we, Nassim Taleb is the uh, godfather of talking about the left tail or the fat tails that we see in equity markets. But that exists in any single security because those fat tails exist when they are susceptible to those fat tails. For equities, it's negative growth shocks. For bonds, it's ne- uh, negative inflation shocks. Um, and so the an important caveat here is that if you have big fat tails, then you're likely to see more four standard deviation events. And that's going to be, you know, you're going to need to subtract another 10% if it's 10% volatility. So a good rule of thumb here is first, identify whether it's a normally distributed strategy. Second, once you identify identif- uh, identify that it is a normally distributed strategy, what's the long-term volatility expectation? And then do three standard deviations to the left to get an expectation of drawdowns every three to five years. And if they're, if you're, you're seeing something that is 10 ball and, you, and in its live history, it hasn't exhibited a negative drawdown, then you need to do some more digging because it's likely that hidden, uh, that risk is hidden somewhere else that you haven't seen or in the live performance of the strategy, it hasn't shown up yet. Okay. So I hope that's useful. I hope that's helpful in, for, in understanding what you, how to, how to evaluate strategies, fund managers asset allocations and so on. All right, back to the podcast. And so and you can do that. You can always take something and reduce this volatility and increase its skewer ketosis. Yeah. Yep. Selling, selling vol has been a predominant feature of doing exactly selling that. Vol, a lot of credit, a lot of insurance and mm-hmm. securities are, you know, are things that you know, it takes a full cycle to realize the risk. And so it'll look like a sharp ratio of two until there's a minus four in there and it balances out at 0.5. Um, but that's a very, that's, that, that looks more like equities, to be honest. Right? You want a normal random walk process whenever you can. And you need to see those pizza drop pulls. You need to see losses. How does it do in March 2013? I, I'm not exactly sure. But what this isn't, what this one isn't, uh, is a short-term vol targeting dynamic vol process. This is a long-term. I mean, I did this monthly. I'm just trying to roughly get the positions right. I'm not trying to deal with vol clusters in a way that you would probably do it in the short term. Um, uh, it's, it's an interesting question. How did we, we can always check. Uh, my guess is okay. But the fact is, um, you can't judge a process by one or two weeks. And, and I would also say, man, equities did not do well in that period either. So it's a, uh, uh, you know, better than equities is probably a fair statement. Actually, it's interesting. We've, we've constantly commented on internally how the scrutiny of quant or systematic based strategies is so much higher than it is for more traditional strategies, right? If you've got a traditional manager who comes in to pitch his, discretionary value quality strategy. He tells a nice little narrative. He describes it, the, the pitch for four or five stocks that he really likes right here and why they're the largest positions in the portfolio. And the CIO feels really good and this guy knows what he's doing. And, you know, it, it maps to whatever he learned in his MBA. And, but if you, if you, when you go through a quad process that everybody really begins to drill down to the details, it's like, yeah, but what are the tails? And yeah, but how did they do here? And, yeah, but what do we expect here? And what's what's the what are the go forward expectations? And what what are the capacity constraints? And what's your what's your trading costs? And like it's amazing how when you empower people with more data, then what it does is it prompts more practice, questions. Sure, but I think you're absolutely right. I'm gonna leave this like first of all, everyone starts off like 99 percent of investors start off and end up thinking of themselves like I like 
I'm a Warren Buffett athlete. I invest like Warren Buffett. I want to buy low and sell high. I want to buy good things cheap. And, I, and, and because it's so intuitive, it doesn't mean it's easy to do. And it doesn't even mean that's the, like, it's like, that's the reason you're making your money. Yeah, exactly. but very intuitive. So I think the problem a lot of quants have is they don't properly explain the intuition or they can't explain the intuition and it becomes much, much harder as a selling feature. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is it, this is so anathema to help people think of what their role as an investor is. The, uh, my role as an investor, and we always talk about this, the sharp ratio is return over risk. And, they, and they'll say, my role as an investor is to try and time things. I want to pick the winners. I'm trying to improve the return. And what we're saying is, hold on a second. You can do a much, much, much better job by improving the risk and keeping the returns constant mm-hmm. and then using a bit of leverage. And so it turns out it's much easier to come at it from the risk side, but people go, but that's not what investing is. Portfolio construction. I always think of portfolio construction as putting the pieces together as risk. And a lot of people are portfolio construction is about returns. And it's like, well, TAA is about returns, maybe. But at the end of the day, I really think like, well, this is why I really think portfolio construction is like, I want my starting point that I can do my active stuff around. But what is my starting point? And the fact is, risk is more stable. Correlations, in fact, are more stable. And they're easier to predict as a result. And they are, they are something that you can put pressure on about the future. If you want to make predictions about the future, risk and correlations, risk in particular, correlations are hard, but risk in particular, like, deserve weight. Yep. Because a, a two-year bond tends to have less risk than a 10-year bond. And that's a pretty straightforward statement. Uh, you know, the, 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 you, you, Euro-dollar futures tend to have less risk than gold. That is something you can pretty much go to the bank and it will always be the case, but it's enough to add value in the future. It's very, very hard to predict returns. Most people destroy value trying to predict returns. And I would say at the end of the day, start thinking about risk from the risk factor portfolio construction side and, and then start to think, well, how can I add some output? How can I, how can I then start to juice the returns up? So this is another counterintuitive point to what people think investing should, right? What he's actually saying is that the way he thinks about portfolio construction when he's dealing with, whether it was teacher pension plan at the time or any investor, is he doesn't think about What's your, what is it that you want me to do in terms of capture and return, but more what volatility target, what, what's the volatility budget, the risk budget that you're giving me, right? So for example, one may presume that if you are a 100% equity investor and we look at back at history and see a volatility, a historical standard deviation of 15% annualized, that you're an investor that has the willingness to take 15% annualized volatility. So if you come to me and you say, look, this is what I can do, then that's my risk budget. And that is how I should think about creating portfolios for you. If we go back to the equity example, and we know that you can take 15%, that's the budget that you've given me. The question for me then is, what? how can I put pieces together outside of equities where that will add up to a 15% annual standard deviation, but provide me more return per unit of risk? For 15 units of risk, am I able to do more units of return than the equity markets. I think Chris pointed in the beginning that U.S. equities historically have had a sharp ratio of 0.5. So at 15% volatility, the expectation should be 7.5. But the reality is that it's more likely 0.25 sharp, right? So it's significantly lower. And if I can add bonds in there, can I increase for those 15 units of risk, more units of return, more units of expected return if I balance them the right way? If I add managed futures trend, how many more units of return can I add for the same amount of risk? Now, the constraint here has always been leverage, right? If you're adding these diversifiers, your sharp ratio is going up, but your volatility is going down because diversification does reduce volatility, then that's a problem. The moment you remove that constraint, 
we can all now start thinking about risk budget in terms of asset allocation. Uh, you, you, and then adding different diversifiers, using leverage in order to maintain our, the risk target that we want and construct portfolios from the basis of maximum unit of return per unit of risk taken. Okay, so it's super important, not useful three years ago, very useful today to start reframing portfolio construction going forward. Okay, back to the podcast. So let's go there. All right, let's go there because I think we've, I mean, we've, we've, we all kind of agree on the risk parity as, as the neutral starting point. And we, I think all agree, you know, we, we, we call this the impossible market or navigating the impossible market. You say, okay, not impossible, but it's highly challenging. So let's go to that challenge, right? So we've got a well-diversified portfolio. We've got, we've taken a good crack at managing the risk of all these major economic environments, but this risk parity portfolio, given capital market assumptions, probably is, is not going to do it, right? It's not going to hit the re- required return targets. It's not going to give you 5% real over the next 10 years in the way that it gave you more than 5% real over the last 20 years at the same level of ball. So, you know, right. you mentioned earlier, right? We can raise leverage a little bit, right? That helps a little bit. But there's a, you know, when the expected return is 1% or 2% on your risk parity portfolio, there's a max sort of Kelly leverage that, you're going to want to hit before your, you know, your expected compound return begins to decay. And so you've got to add other edges to the pile in order to be able to pile on to get your, you know, to your, to your 5% required return target. How do you, how do you think about that? So um, there's, there's two bits to that. And I think, and, 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 and so the first one is beta's returns are probably lower today than they were historically. And, and, and you just said that as a statement, I think they're only one or 2%, but you've got to, Defend that statement, I think, a little bit, and you're going to say, why, why are they lower today? And, and the answer is, um, they're lower because the price of everything is high. And you know, for a given set of cash flows, if you're willing to pay twice as much for those cash flows now as you were five years ago, uh, your expected returns come down as a result. And so when prices are high for a given set of cash flows, you can think of that discount rate as the IRR, but like, like, like the, the lower the discount rate, the lower your expected return. It sounds really obvious, but the problem is right now the discount rate across the board for everything is as low as it's ever been. You cannot escape the fact that expected returns are also as low as they've ever been. And so let's break it down, right? Like, let's let us put some numbers on it. So what's the, the 10 year yields, what in the 60 basis point range? Okay, so just a quick interruption here. Obviously this was recorded three years back. Rates were really low back then. We're recording this in Q3 2023. Uh, we've seen possibly the largest bond market drawdown in history, certainly in our lifetimes. So things have changed a little bit, at least in one side of the equation. Bonds seem to be pretty attractive right now. Who knows whether there's more pain to come or not, but you know we're sitting at rates uh, just under just over five, five and a half percent. So very, very different for what expectations should be going forward in one of the components of the risk parity portfolio. All right, back to the program. And the Yep. Equity risk premium is in the, or, you know, and, and like short-term rates are in the, I don't know, zero range, right? And the equity risk premium, if you look at the median, the median is in the 150 basis point range. Let's, let's be generous and call it 200 basis points. So, and commodities, notwithstanding some sort of overlay, <laughs> yeah. let's call it zero, right? Yeah. So the expected return real is low on 60, 40 is obscenely low on risk parity, is, is obscenely low. Risk parity is going to give you the same return for probably a lot less volatility. I think you could argue that there may be some kind of 
rebalancing risk premium and in, in risk parity that you don't get from 60-40. But notwithstanding all that, you're just, you, you know, you're in the sort of two to 3% range max real and it's right. probably substantially below that. So the one thing is, you got it. So a couple, a couple of points there and, and you're right. Everything's low. We can talk about why they're low because they are, they, that's super important to understand. But just because yields are low in bonds doesn't mean the risk premium bonds is low. And, and I think you talked about the bond risk premiums as yields, but like that's actually not the right way to think about it. Like the yields are on a bond, but you have to understand when we're talking about bonds and we, and if you want to compare like a bond is not an asset class, a bond is a thing that you put your money in a 10 year bond and, 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 and you know, one year from now, it's a nine-year bond. And five years from now, it's a five-year bond. And the statistical characteristics, I think, are constantly changing until it turns into nothing. If you, if you want to compare perpetuity, which is equities, to a perpetuity of fixed income, you have to start thinking about a rolled bond process. And if you really want to get it right, you probably have to talk about a funded rolled bond process. Yep. So if you want to compare perpetuity of equities to a perpetuity of bonds, you got to look at levered rolled bonds. That is a completely different asset class than a bond. The futures for, contract. For, for, for futures contracts as well, or swaps, or like, you know, like when you think about a funded, levered process. Yeah. And so you like future, like think about what does a, uh, a futures in bond look like? Well, futures in bond is, is arguably now a perpetuity. And so you think when you want to compare apples to apples, you should probably think, well, what are the characteristics of the futures in bond and the futures in equities? And you go, the big characteristic of levered bonds, there's two of them, is that when the yields come down, the short rate tends to come down even further. And the top performing asset class almost on the planet over the last 30 years has been US, uh, sorry, has been JGBs, Japanese bonds. When their yields fell below 100 basis points, they got better. Why? Because the short rate was, was zero to negative and the carry was still very good. And you can, you can have 4% yield and 3% short rates and you're only making 100 basis points in carry. You can still be making 100 basis points in carry at 100 yields. At, yeah. at, 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 uh, you know. And so it doesn't mean that they will be always. It doesn't mean they're not enormously risky. Like there's lots of caveats to all this always, but there's a massive mistake that people assume People like the other thing I think the real knock on bonds is that people tend to think of them in terms of their yield. No one knows what the price of a 10 because you can't talk about the price of 10 years. It doesn't make any sense, but you can talk about the yield. Mm-hmm. The yield is like saying the PE. And people go, oh, the yield's only 100 basis points, so bonds are worse. So bonds are quoted like kind of differently than equity. You know, equities like rise in value and people go, oh, they're better because they don't look at what's my forward looking return. You know, bonds rise in value. People go, oh, the foreign looking return is lower because the yield is lower. And, and so like, I mean, like, there's a real, I think, like mistake in that. The other thing about levered bonds is that they're a shockingly good global diversifier. So if you think about like, why do we do internet? I, every global bond on the planet is, is, is trying to diversify internationally, right? Like, everyone's trying to get into Asia and trying to get into EM and trying to get into Latin and go, why? Because we need some diversification in our equities. The diversification on the equity side is okay. There's a little bit. Like maybe you're, you know, like it's, it's a, 70, 80% correlated, and maybe you get a 5 or 10% increase in your sharp ratio in your equities, maybe. Global bonds are incredibly good diversifiers because of that short rate, which is driven by the local central banks, and those tend to be relatively uncorrelated with each other. And so you've got this feature where like, the diversification benefit across global bonds is actually significantly better than it is across global equities. And central banks tend to drop the short rate when equities are doing badly. So global levered bonds are a better diversifier against equities. So you gotta, you gotta make sure you're defining bonds properly. And Chris, so how, how does currency work? And continue your thought, but come back to how currency works into that as well, if you don't well, like. The, I mean, so, so typically when you're using futures, you can just sort of think, you're thinking it as a local, and so you don't really have to worry about that. But I would say very much as a Canadian investor, you should be super aware of your currency exposures. Um, and, and there's two lines of thought on FX hedging. Um, and uh, one is FX, has zero expensive return and there's a cost to hedging. So why would I bother? 
right? And so you say, like, like, mm-hmm. like, like, like I, I might as well have a completely unhedged portfolio. I might have a deliberately unhedged portfolio. I might have a policy where I literally like reverse like hedges if they were to show up because I want to be unhedged. And so, and so you look at that and you say, well, like, what have I done? You say, well, I, uh, you know, imagine a pension plan in Canada that goes out and buys private assets in, in Brazil or in Chile or, you know, in, in like anywhere yep. with a whole bunch of short Canada long somewhere else from an FX perspective. And if you don't hedge it, uh, you can end up with a very, very big short Canada long exposure. And, and so, so from a, from a, a, a sharp ratio investor who only cares about return, you go, I, I, why should I bother? Why should I bother hedging? For, from a, a sharp ratio investor who cares about risk, you go, oh my God, I got this giant source of volatility with zero expected return. Yeah, the tail's wagging the dog. Like, yeah. I, at least I've got this thing that just, it's just noise with zero. That is sharp ratio destructive. That is like, that is the worst use of an active risk budget you can imagine. I want to take, I want to, I want to take, I, I'm given a certain amount of risk to spend. I want to get the most amount of return for the risk I'm given. That's what I am as an investor. Why would I put it in something with zero expected return? For sure, you should hedge your currencies, but you have to be really careful. And this is this is where this is like the CIOs challenge part two. Is you go, I, I, even if I knew how to build the maximum sharp ratio portfolio, I knew exactly what to do. I'm in a world of constrained resources, and my major constrained resource is my balance sheet. It's my leverage. And you go like, and you look at it and say, where am I? Where am I? Where am I spending my cash? And if you if you go and you hedge away your FX exposure, you have to set money aside to defend that. Because there's a world where the stocks are falling and the FX is moving against you and you got to come up with money. And if you don't, you get really caught in liquidity space. And, and a couple of pension plans, you know, doing, I think, the right thing, hedging currency, but probably overhedging and not properly defending their, 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 their cash on it, got themselves in a bit of trouble in 2008. So do you currency hedge? Absolutely. But you have to think of that money as it's doing something. It's, it's, a, it's money I'm spending to improve my sharp ratio, like, like, like hiring an active team. And in fact, I think when we looked at it, we figured that if we currency hedge ourselves completely at teachers, the increase in sharp ratio was equivalent to the entire active management of teachers. So it's just to say, it's, it's wow. a, that is a mistake because you've taken away the source of risk and you go replace yeah. that risk with better return. I like that. So what about, it, what about currencies as, a, as an actual uh, asset class themselves? Uh, Did they, so did they play into this structure? Clearly, there's, when we said that commodities don't necessarily have a long sign risk premium, Obviously, FX by definition does not have a long side risk premium because there's not even a long side. Like, what are you talking about? Is it long Canada or long US? But are there risk premiums within commodities just like there are risk premiums within FX, just like there are risk premiums within commodities? Absolutely. Because all you need for a risk premium is a willing payer who's willing to pay money to someone else because it improves their position. They're paying that money because they're getting something beneficial out of it. You got a payer, you got a payee. That's exactly what the equity risk premium is. That's what the fixed income risk premium is. And those exist all over the place. And for sure, FX is, a, is, is, is a still a, a great place to invest. Um, I, but I would say you should not ever, well, you should be very careful about the, uh, about the extra risk you take on. Um, but that, that, that wasn't, it's not, it's, it's, it kind of came as like, as, a, as, as the baggage associated with another investment, but, but it's got a cost. And to think that the cost is only an expected return side is not to realize that the risk is a cost. It's, it's, it's a, and, and you know, risk isn't really a cost. Well, it absolutely is. You could have taken that risk budget and put it into equities or put it into bonds or put it into this diversified portfolio. Um, absolutely risk is a cost because you've got, you are risk constrained. Someone somewhere said you're only allowed to take X amount of risk and your job is to make the most return you can for that risk. Now, do you have to hedge all your effects? No, because when you have this giant source of risk and it's, and it's literally an overarching source of risk, um, you don't have to drive to zero for it to disappear into your portfolio. You just have to take it from a, from a loud roar down to a dull roar. But once it's a dull roar, like the, the math of diversification starts to take over and it starts to become a, 
a smaller and smaller contributor to total portfolio. So there's just a, there's a tipping point where you want to get it below that level. Uh, and then, and then just be careful. If you're going to, if you're going to FX hedge, make sure that you've set that money aside. Now, there's one final debate in all of this, which is, but what if you really, really believe the correlation between Canadian dollars and equities is negative? And then you say, if I'm long US and short cat, is that not a great trade in 2008? It's like, do I not think the Canadian dollar is going to smoke if and every time the, the stock market falls? The answer is it might. But you've got to be very, very careful making investment bets around correlation. Correlation is super noisy, super unstable, very hard to predict, not very dependable statistics. How did it in 2020? It took a so long will, time for it to start working. Yeah, and, and it won't necessarily in an inflation crisis. It won't, you know, so I, I would say that there is a, uh, you know, the reason why every big U.S. hedge fund on the planet doesn't hedge their equity risk with short cat is because that would be insane. Like it, it would be, it would be a crazy additional source of risk. But I, I just like, be careful, um, you know, building a portfolio around an in-sample look back and says, hey, guess what? These things were negatively correlated with this because yeah, that is a super, super dangerous thing. To, you should probably be careful about ever building a portfolio around assumed negative correlations. Right. So, it's, so it's the most appropriate thing is to think about it as a different source of risk that you have to manage and doing 100% of it is probably not a good yeah. idea. I mean, like in our portfolios, we want, we want, like, what we are investing is risk. And we're trying to make as much return as possible for the risk we're investing in an in, in, in asset class that, that or an exposure that has zero expected return and lots of risk is very, very costly. It's, it's, it's quite literally, you know, anyway, and, and since it's very cheap to hedge, typically, um, yeah, you know, I think that's an easy thing to do. It doesn't mean you completely hedge it, doesn't mean you hedge everything, but just be aware that, that, that there are tricks in there. But it does get to the CIO's challenge of going, where do I spend my bullets? Now, how do we're institution yeah. pricing risk on privates? Because I think that's uh, a so major problem that's a, there. That's a very uh, tricky thing to do. Um, so you say, like, how do institutions price risk? And, and, and so, you know, like, obviously, it's, it's in the news right now with, uh, with AIMCO. And, and, and like, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm, I'm unsympathetic. And to a certain extent, I'm very sympathetic. Because their risk system almost certainly did not look back 35 years. And, 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 and so they would have shown zero chance of this happening, according to their risk system. I don't think anyone's institutional risk system really looked back that far. Now, that doesn't mean that when the dealer came to you, because like, you know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, in the business said like, the dealers would come to him every six months with this trade. You know, there's this cap them, cap various swap. And they said, let's got a sharp ratio of 15. And, and it did have a sharp ratio of 15. And, 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 and kudos to him, because sometimes it's the trades you don't do, not the trades you do. But he went, yeah, it's got a sharp ratio of 15 over the last 30 years, actually. But it's got a sharp ratio of minus two over the last 31 years. And, and that's a crazy trade. Now, the thing is like, you know, so, so kudos for him not doing it because it's super, super tempting to put the trade on that only once every 30 years blows you up because, because, you know, probably not going to happen in your lifetime. And, and you can, you can look like a genius in between. So that's a problem. It's a risk system problem. It doesn't mean that that was a terrible trade to do if you size it right. Like it may, you know, it may still be a positive expense return, but clearly it has to be sized right. Um, but it doesn't mean like we have got risks. Like, this doesn't mean we have the private risks right either. On average, because I don't think anyone's got the 35 year private model either. And then you've only got like a 10 or 15 year look back on privates. They also look very, very low risk. And so you see a lot of, a lot of private models like, okay, so we know for sure they're smooth because they're basically valued right. by accounts yeah. and, they're, and they're lagged. You know, if you, if you could just take the S&P 500 and just lag it six months, that would, that would look like a brand new asset class at the annual level. Like it quite literally, it would be uncorrelated. It would be zero correlation. So like, I could, like technically, that's amazing. It's like, I would call it two assets instead of one. My sharp ratio goes up by like 40%. If all I did was just lag something by six months, 
But that's at the one-year level. At the three-year level, of course, the fact that their six-month lag starts to show up, the five-year level, they're 100% correlated again. It's artificial. So lagging looks good at the one-year level. It looks good at the two-year level. It's a bit artificial over that. The smoothing is artificial as well because it's because while the volatility is not shown, of course, there's trending or zero correlation in that's almost the definition of it. So it still has the same or should have the same peak to troughs. Now, it may also have a grind up, slain down dynamic where it only shows its risk every 10 years. And you go, this becomes a really hard thing to risk. And it becomes a trap, right? Because what you see is really good diversifier, really low risk, never blown up. And, and, and so you can imagine why someone might think, well, maybe infrastructure is like as risky as a Canadian bond. You go, can't be. Because it has all the discount rate risk, but it also at the end of the day, the reason the reason these assets, the reason real estate or infrastructure or other privates are paying more than the risk free rate is because they have equity risk. They have they have business risk in them, and so this is what you will see. I think in a COVID strike, is you'll start to see the business risk in a bunch of these assets because there are business risks. That's what you're getting paid for. And so it's a bond and it's paid like a bond. And so, and so along the way, we never saw the cash flow hit. Okay, I think this point bears repeating and emphasizing because, of course, after a full market cycle where equities and specifically U.S. equities have done so well in the previous decade. You know, I remember back in 2009, after the COVID crisis, when you were looking at the alternative sleeve for even medium-sized plans and even investment advisors, you saw a lot of tactical asset allocation or managed futures in those sleeves because it had recently done well, right? Fast forward 10 years, those active mandates have underperformed the S&P and the private mandates that have become very, very popular for institutional basis trickles down all the way to the advisor space and the use of leverage in those spaces when everything works. You know, when we look at alternative sleeves today across the board from institutions in, to individual investors, it is dominated exclusively by private equity, private credit and private real estate. It seems like a bond. There's a lot of comfort in what, uh, you know, what uh, AQR, specifically Cliff Assets, calls volatility laundering. But at the end of the day, the underlying security is equity. And if you're using leverage, it's levered equity. And so whatever, and, and that leverage that is being used for the private equity after two and 20, you end up get, taking more risk that you don't see for the same return as you would get for non-levered public markets. So it's, at, when you're creating portfolios and it's portfolio construction time and you want to be able to weight your risk accordingly, just know that those privates have volatilities that are equity-like. And even if you don't receive that volatility, if we go through a prolonged bear market and persist in negative uh, growth shocks, then what we care about is the return that we're going to have in our lifetime. And if we happen to be in something that we thought was a bond, but in fact is a levered equity, then we could get into trouble. So you know, this is just a reminder, uh, a public service announcement that if you do have privates uh, and you're overweight, you might want to rethink that equation. And this is clearly why we need to rethink it. All right, back to the program. So we go, oh, there's no risk in the cash flows. Well, of course there's risk in the cash flows. And, and, and there's, there's the danger of leveraging something up too much. If you take an, you know, an asset class and, and if you take an asset and lever it up eight or nine times, it only takes a small decrease in cash flows before you get yourself into some trouble. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to ANCO because I don't think their risk system would have caught it. Um, I don't think many pension plans' risk systems would have caught it. I think pension plan risk systems have also misdiagnosed risk in a lot of assets, maybe maybe possibly underrepresented risk in some asset classes. But the problem with the... And, and so this is sort of the... I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but you know, you know uh, Nassim Tlaib has this definition of fragility. And it's... Uh, 
you know, and, and he's got a really good example. I really like because he goes like, you know, like 50 years or 100 years ago. I'm going to totally butcher the story, but go with, this, go with the gist of it. But 50 or 100 years ago, uh, you know, the, the power grids were all localized. And, and so you had your local power generator and, and there were brownouts all the time because these things would constantly go down. And they, every single time one had a problem, you'd have a local brownout and it kind of sucked. And so, and, and, you know, fast forward 50 years and you've got this incredible uh, process of overflows and dependencies and you've got this extremely optimized process but it's incredibly fragile now. And so what happens is one squirrel in a, in a, in a transistor like, or whatever like, uh, out in, in the East Coast, and it takes down the entire East Coast grid. And so you go from like a large number of relatively unimportant brownouts to a catastrophic blackout. And, and I kind of think that's, that's how I think about risk because if you think about like what the public markets show you is they constantly show you their risk. There is no hiding the risk of the public market. There's no hiding from March in 2020. There's no hiding from 2008. The risk is there, it's in your face, and so you see it and you know it. The privates hide their risk. The risk is there and it will show up. And it shows up over, unfortunately, 2008 didn't show up because it was so fast that by the time they had to start marketing in 2009, it was already coming back. A 2000 2003 will show it. The 1965 to 1975 will show it. And so at the end of the day, I think we got like, we potentially have this fragile system because we haven't seen the risk and we think that it's not there. And, and because it's, 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 it's being hidden away to a certain extent. And we've taken short term volatility. You know, local brownouts, and we turn it into bigger, probably more catastrophic type explosions, much much less frequently. So, so, so that's, right. like, that's the challenge of private. I think pay. it's great because we, you know, we spent all this time talking about all the ways that you're not going to hit five percent. So there's a whole other podcast <laughs> on no, how you can actually hit five no. percent. So 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 it's a it's a tricky world, and this is why like, this is ultimately why my portfolio construction is. This and this and this, not ors. Like I love the ands, not the ors, because I think that gives you the best fighting chance of because you don't know. Of course, portfolio construction is is about is about giving yourself as many ways to win and 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 giving yourself the least number of ways to lose. I think that's at the end of the day. It's it's and that's what you got to focus on is what happens. A thing you don't expect to have happen happens. Do I have something in my portfolio that 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 does okay in that world? And and that's and I think that you know, if you come full circle, that's ultimately what you're trying to do at the at the at the aggregate level. And, you know, and then Alpha, Alpha's heart. Okay, so that was it for the podcast we did with Chris back in the day. You know, we did talk for an hour and 40 minutes with him, but didn't quite get to that final phase of how he deals with his alphas in order to fill in the gaps of that kind of core portfolio uh, strategy. But uh, he did do one. We did have an interview with him later on. I'm going to do a similar edit to that as I did today. But in the meantime, if you want to get an idea of what, stacking alphas looks like. We did a couple of podcasts that I think you might find useful. Uh, the first one is Resolve Crew on Optimizing Risk Parity and Stacking Alpha. So that's an interesting one because we go through the full gamut here. But uh, the second half of that podcast, we really get into that whole alpha generation process, how to stack it, what it means and why it's important. Uh, the other one that we did is with our own CIO and quant, head quant is Andrew Butler. And that podcast is called Resolve's own Andrew Butler on integrating prediction with optimization. So I highly recommend that you check those out. We'll put some links in the show notes. Okay, that's it for now. I hope you liked it. And if you did, please do like and subscribe. We put a lot of work into these podcasts. And, and the other thing we ask in return is that, um, that you let us know that you liked it. Add some comments, uh, you know, maybe share it around because I think we all benefit from understanding these basic tenets of portfolio construction. 
now we have less constraints, more opportunities to do better for ourselves, for our clients, and for the institutions that we represent. Okay, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.